God predestined that we would be what? Conformed to the image of His Son. So God causes all things to work together for our good, that is, our conformity to His Son. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part four of Prayer for All Seasons. It's a variation of a very old question. Why does God allow pain and suffering, specifically illness, to fall upon people, especially believers? Well, today we're continuing to look more deeply at what James chapter 5 has to say about the role that physical illness plays in the life of both believers and unbelievers. And as Tom examines the scriptures, you'll be reminded that all things that occur in the life of those who belong to Christ Jesus are ultimately used for their good and God's eternal glory. And as you'll see, the proper response to illness is prayer, prayer of surrender, release, petition, and praise in the midst of pain. Let's join Tom now to hear more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 there, Paul describes the fact that he had these amazing visions, and because of those visions, to keep him from exalting himself, he was given a thorn in the flesh. The most common interpretation of that thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical problem. Perhaps with his eyes, we really don't know and can't be sure. But it was given to keep him humble. And sometimes God brings illness into our lives to keep us humble. And dovetailing with that is number four, to deepen our dependence on Him. To deepen our dependence. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Right after Paul says, I was given this thorn and I sought the Lord that He might take it away from me three times. What did God say to Paul? No, I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. When we find ourselves in the midst of sickness and ongoing struggle physically, it produces dependence. We realize we can't make it on our own. That for everything in life, we need God. Number five, it enables us, sickness in our lives enables us to comfort others. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, God is a God of all comfort, and He comforts us in all our affliction. Again, a general word for all kinds of troubles. He comforts us so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we endure various issues, it puts us in a better position to understand and help and comfort others as they go through those difficulties and troubles. Number six in my little list here, illness and sickness makes us more like Christ makes us more like Christ. Romans 8:28 For all things God causes all things, that includes illness, to work together for good. That doesn't mean your happiness. What is your good? The next verse, verse 29. God predestined that we would be what? Conformed to the image 
of His Son. So God causes all things to work together for our good, that is, our conformity to His Son. Number seven, illness, sickness, causes us to release our hold on this life and to long for heaven. I love the intimate expression you get from the heart of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he sort of lets us know what it was like to get old for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, I resemble that remark, you know, as you get older, it just seems like the length of time to get ready grows because you've got this longer list of lotions and creams and powders that you have to put somewhere to help hold the body together. He says, even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And he calls this, this decaying momentary light affliction. All that we're enduring here is producing an eternal weight of glory because we don't look at the stuff here. We look at the eternal things. We look at heaven. And he goes on in chapter 5, verse 1, to say if this earthly tent, that's the body, is torn down, we will have a body like Christ, eternal in the heavens. And he goes on to say where this drives him ultimately, verse 8, he says, I prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord because back in... The early part of the chapter, verse 4, he says, In this tent we groan. Because of the groaning in this tent, because of the difficulty and the decay and the trouble that's associated with this tent, we long for an eternal dwelling. It makes us long for heaven. As we go through illness and trouble in this body and physical problems, it releases our hold on this life and makes us long for heaven. In the same passage, number 8, I think it causes us to release our hold on those we love. Illness and sickness is designed by God, I think, to loosen our hold on those we love. Those of you who've lost loved ones, close family members, Sheila and I, over the last number of years, have seen all of our parents go into the Lord's presence. No parents, no grandparents. And as we look at that reality, as we saw them go through the pain and suffering that's often associated with the process of dying, we realize that one of the things God was doing through that process was loosening our grip on them. When you see that one you love in such pain and discomfort, what you at first thought you would never agree to becomes your prayer. God, take them. Take them to where there will be no more pain. There will be no more trouble. Take them into your presence. And I think God uses illness to cause us to release the illness of others, to cause us to release our hold on them. Number nine, God sometimes uses illness for divine judgment. This is true throughout the Old Testament, but specifically, and there are a lot of references I could give you, I read this week, but let me give you one from Acts chapter 12. Acts 23, or excuse me, Acts 12, 23, it says, Herod, you remember Herod was acting like a rock star and loving the fact that everyone's saying he was a god and not a man, and he's enjoying the moment. And we read in Acts 12.23 that an angel from God struck Herod with worms so that he died because he didn't give God the glory. There is a microcosm of how God sometimes uses illness, and that is as an act of divine judgment 
And number ten, and finally, and this is really where I've wanted to come to, is God uses illness sometimes to discipline sin in the lives of believers. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. You remember Paul is talking here about the Lord's table and the fact that there were those who were eating of the Lord's table in an unworthy way. And if they do that, they're going to be guilty of showing disrespect to the sacrifice of our Lord and to Him Himself. Therefore, verse 28, a man must examine himself, and in so doing he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Very serious thing to take of the Lord's table and still be holding on to sin. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not discern the body of Christ rightly. For this reason, verse 30, many among you are weak and sick. See what Paul is saying? He's saying to the Corinthians, listen, there are people who are sick in your congregation, and the reason they're sick is because it's an act of divine chastening on their sin. Now, that isn't always the reason God brings illness. That's one of many you just saw there, and there are many others that I don't even have time to to show you. But that is one of the reasons God has. So, as you look at those five propositions, you have in them an overview, a summary of all the Bible teaches about illness. Sickness traces its roots to the fall and human sin. God is always the ultimate cause of all physical problems. God sometimes permits Satan to afflict people with illness. God is always the one who heals, and God always uses illness to accomplish his purpose. Now, that's all introduction. I told my wife I was crowding a message and a half into one message, but I think that was crucial because now it won't take us as long to deal with James chapter 5. With that brief theology of illness, I want us to look at James 5, 14 to 16. As we try to unpack what's happening in these verses, we need to make sure we grasp three things. The true nature of the person's problem, the solution that James is proposing, and the outcome that he's predicting. In other words, we need to understand the diagnosis, the prescription, and the prognosis. Let's examine first the diagnosis. What exactly is wrong with the person in verse 14? What is the circumstance that demands for us to call the elders of the church to pray? Well, first of all, when there's physical illness. Notice verse 14. Is any among you sick? The Greek word here for sick can refer to spiritual weakness, but when it does... It's always qualified. It'll say weak in faith or weak in conscience. But usually this word speaks of physical illness. In fact, always in the Gospels, this word is used of physical illness. And James is borrowing a lot from the teaching and ministry of our Lord. So almost universally, scholars and translators take this to be physical sickness. But it's not just any physical sickness. There are a couple of clues here that this is serious physical illness. Notice verse 14, he must call for the elders. That implies that he's physically unable to go to them. He can't come to the corporate worship. He can't come to the elders. He must call them. And also notice in verse 14, they are to pray over him. Several commentators make the point that this picture is someone confined to his bed and that the elders are gathered around his bed, as it were, praying over him. So it's physical illness. 
But it's not just physical illness. It's serious physical illness. But it's not just serious physical illness. Notice it's when the seriously ill believer, and this is the defining point, when the seriously ill believer suspects that his illness is the result of divine discipline for unrepentant sin. When the believer suspects that his illness, his serious illness, is the result of divine chastening for unrepentant sin. Notice the expression in verse 15. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. You remember 1 Corinthians 11.30? It's possible for God to send illness as a discipline for unrepentant sin. Apparently, this person suspected that might be true. But there's another reason I think this is a believer who thinks there's a connection between their unrepentant sin and their illness. And that is, notice the example James uses to illustrate the power of prayer. He chooses in verses 17 and 18, Elijah. Now, that's, a, that's an unusual choice. Most of us, apart from this passage, would not have thought of Elijah as a man of prayer. There are a number of others in the Old Testament that might have come to our mind first. And he chooses one specific incident from the life of Elijah. And this is fascinating. What's going on in verses 17 and 18? Elijah prayed that it would not rain. You remember why? It's because under Ahab and Jezebel, Israel, the northern tribes, were not worshiping the true God. In fact, they had turned to worship the Baals. And Elijah prayed that it would not rain. And at his prayer, the heavens shut and it did not rain. It was an act of divine discipline on his people. And then, you remember what happened at Mount Carmel. All the prophets of Baal showed up. There was a contest as to who was the true God. God spoke with fire, consumed the altar. Elijah slew the 400 prophets of Baal. He goes back to the people. The people say, we will serve Yahweh. Our hearts have turned back to Him. He alone will be our God. And Elijah runs before the chariot back to the city, confident that God's people have repented and embraced the true God again. And after that victory... Elijah prayed that God would lift the divine chastening and send rain. Do you see the connection? You had divine physical chastening, drought, because of sin. And when there was repentance, you have Elijah praying. And as a result of his prayer, that chastening was lifted and rain brought physical healing to the land. James didn't choose this example by accident. Here you have a believer who is seriously ill and he believes that it may be divine chastening as a result of his sin. What's the prescription? Verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. As hard as it may be to believe in Roman Catholic theology, this passage is the basis for the sacrament of extreme unction or what's popularly known as last rites. The priest praying over the dying to remove any remnant of sin and to strengthen his soul for death. That is not what this passage teaches. In fact, there's one very strong argument against it, and I'll just mention it in passing. This passage does not anticipate death, but healing. It has nothing to do with last rites. Now, if you believe your serious physical illness 
is the result of your unrepentant sin, then here's what you're to do. Here's the prescription. Call for the elders of the church. Call for the plurality of godly men appointed to lead the church. We're studying elders on Sunday night. In fact, we'll finish our study of them tonight. It's those men Christ has appointed in each church to lead. And when the elders come, they are to do two things. First of all, they're to pray over him. Pray what? Pray for genuine repentance from the sin involved. And pray for divine healing. This doesn't mean, by the way, that the believer isn't supposed to pray. Verse 13 says we're to pray in every circumstance. So what the believer is really doing is calling the elders alongside to join him in praying for repentance and healing. And the elders are also to anoint him with oil. Now notice it says the emphasis here is on prayer. Pray is the main verb of the sentence. Anointing is in both English and Greek a participle. Modifying the main verb. It isn't the main thing. It merely accompanies the prayer. In fact, in verse 15, we're told it's the prayer of faith that restores the sick, not the oil. What's this oil about? Well, the only other mention of anointing with oil is in the New Testament is in Mark 6.13, where it was in conjunction with the healing miracles of the apostles. So there are several different views as to why the oil is included here. The two most common, however, are there was a medicinal purpose. That's highly unlikely because oil, olive oil, might help a cut on the skin, but it's not going to help cancer or something else going on inside the body. And yet this is always the prescription. More likely, it's symbolic. Symbolic of what? Well, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, anointing was frequently used to symbolize the consecration of a person or thing to the use and service of God. So anointing this person with oil is in essence saying we're praying for his healing and that he will be restored to God's use and his service. So pray and anoint. That's the prescription. Verse 15 is the prognosis. What's the predicted outcome? And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Notice here that it's the elder's prayer and the elder's faith that are the key issue. The sick person has already demonstrated his faith. How? By believing this passage and calling the elders to come and to pray. But now it's the elder's prayer and their faith. And because of the repentant heart of the sick believer and the prayer and faith of the elders, God acts. He restores the sick. He raises him up, that is, he raises him up from his sickbed and forgives the sin. This is a, an absolute promise of forgiveness and divine healing when there is serious illness that is in fact connected to unrepentant sin. It's not a blanket promise that God will heal every person whom the elders go and pray over. But because of the prognosis here, the wonderful prognosis of healing and forgiveness, we're to make sure that we practice this. So there's the diagnosis, the prescription, and the prognosis. How is it we should apply this fascinating passage? Very briefly, let me give you three ways I think we can, we can apply it. Number one, obviously, the primary application is that if you are seriously ill and you think it's because of divine chastening on your unrepentant sin, 
then call us. Call the elders to come and pray. We will do exactly what this passage teaches. And of course, we're always available to pray. But as far as practicing this passage, it's in that very specific circumstance. Number two, look at verse 16. He gives us an application. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now notice here, it's not about calling the elders. It's about praying with one another, confessing our sins to one another. So this is a slightly different situation. This verse encourages us in less serious situations to practice the same principles without the elders and just with one another. Dick Mayhew, in his excellent book on this this issue of healing, writes this, For lesser spiritual problems are less established patterns of sin. This was most likely how they were to keep a short account with God and prevent deterioration in a life-threatening situation. We are to recognize it when we sin and to confess that sin to each other. That's not a blanket sort of command to openly confess our sin to everybody. You, You confess your sin to the person you've sinned against. You go and make it right. You repent of that sin before it becomes an object of divine chastening in your life, whether with physical illness or some other form of divine chastening. Go and make it right. This is like the aspirin. Verses 14 and 15 are the surgery. There's a third application here, and it's a reminder, listen carefully, that every time we or someone else we know is sick, we must turn to God. We must turn to God in prayer, even if we don't think it's a result of our sin. You know, here's where I think we as Christians become careless. It's right that we have appreciation for doctors and medicine, but there comes a point at which our trust is so much in pharmaceuticals and in doctors that we lose sight of the reality that God is our healer. It is wrong to put our hope of healing in doctors and in medicine alone as if they can heal us apart from God's intervention. Turn with me to Second Chronicles. I want to cite one last reference for you before our time is done. Second Chronicles 16. There is a profound verse buried in the heart of the history of the kings. Second Chronicles 16, verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. This passage isn't renouncing Asa for seeking doctors. It's renouncing him for seeking doctors without seeking the Lord. God does use medicine and doctors and various procedures for our good. But folks, if God Himself doesn't cause them to work, they won't benefit us for a single moment. I love the way Alec Motyer in his commentary puts it. Even when we go to the doctor, our eyes are to the Lord. He alone can heal. There is no such thing as non-spiritual healing. When the aspirin works, it is the Lord who made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who has made it knit. Every good gift is from above. On no occasion should a Christian approach a doctor without also approaching God. That's exactly right. When you're sick, pray. Ask others to pray with you. 
even if you don't think it's connected to your sin. But if you think it is connected to your unrepentant sin, then you follow the process that's outlined in James 5. Why? Look at the second half of verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of Prayer for All Seasons. Tom will continue with part five on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.